scriptures are real podcast this is the podcast where we talk about things in the scriptures that made them become real for us and that uh, allows us to have greater impact in our lives and and to uh, draw more power out of the scriptures i'm your host carrie mulestein and today is one of those uh, few times where i'm not joined by anyone else it's just me Uh, And I'm doing this because it seems to me that the fall is a very, very important topic and one that we need to talk about uh, and that will help understand uh, people understand not only the scriptures, but the gospel in general. And uh, there's some elements of studying the fall that have uh, really made the scriptures and the people in the scriptures become very real to me. And so I wanted to share that with us today. I'd also recommend that you uh, listen to the interview that I did with Rebecca Call about the term help meet. I think that's a a really useful one as we're going to talk about uh, understanding the fall and Adam and Eve. And those are some people who have become uh, very real to me as we'll talk about as we go along. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time introducing or anything. Let's just jump right into this podcast and and talk about the fall. And uh, it's something that as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we seem to have a, a different understanding. Well, we don't seem to. We definitely have a different understanding of the fall than most of our Jewish and uh, our other Christian friends. And so it's worth uh, making sure we understand this to some degree. And I want to be very clear that there are a number of things that we do understand and a number of things that we don't understand. Uh, but the things we do understand really have an impact on the way we view life. So. Uh, the two questions that I find my students most often have are these two questions. Was there a need for the fall and did it have to happen that way? So we will we'll start with the first question. Was there a need for the fall? And uh, if I were to do this, and I've done this a whole bunch of times in classes and in other settings, firesides and uh, things at Aspen Grove or whatever. Uh, and I asked this question, was there a need for the fall? And I'm asking a Latter-day Saint audience, uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, then uh, most, and I say, do you think there was a need for a fall? Most people will raise their hands and say, yes, they thought there was a need for a fall. And we do have a doctrine on this. The fall was necessary. On that, we have a, a clear doctrine, and we know that there, the fall was necessary. So that's, that's an important thing. If I were to ask that same question uh, to our uh, Jewish friends or to our other Christian friends, you would not get the same response that the fall was necessary. But for Latter-day Saints, we understand um, that the fall was necessary. But that leads to a second question, uh, which is why, why wouldn't God have created an already fallen world? If we needed to live in a fallen world, if we needed to have this kind of fallen state, why not create a world that's already fallen? And I'd like to be clear on this. I'm really big on on being clear about what we do know uh, doctrinally and what we don't know. So let's be clear on this. We don't have a doctrinal answer to this one. So I'll present some ideas that people have presented over time, uh, lots and lots of different thoughts and ideas. But uh, in the end, we really don't know exactly why God didn't create the world in an already fallen state. So um we're going to just go quickly through some ideas that Daniel H. Ludlow presented on why didn't create an already fallen world. These are just ideas, but uh, they're worth thinking about. Um, one of them is that it's contrary to the nature of God to create anything imperfect or unholy. Uh, Elder um, uh, Orson Pratt talks about this at length. Uh, the idea is that God is a perfect being and he creates everything that is good or holy. He doesn't create imperfect things, and so he, he's not going to create a fallen world. Uh, he'll create a pristine world. I don't know if that's the reason why or not, but that, that's certainly worth thinking about. 
Um, he also suggests that it's contrary to the nature of God to entice men to violate law or to do evil. But we did need opposition in this. And so there had to be some outside element, an outside force that would create that opposition or that temptation. So let me uh, put it this way. This is especially important for Adam and Eve. I have a fallen nature. Uh, by, by birth, I have a fallen nature. You do as well. And so I don't actually need Satan's help to be tempted a tremendous amount. I'm pretty good at tempting myself. My fallen nature is, right? The, the part of me that gets tired and hungry and mad and uh, has hormones and all sorts of other things that, that uh, it, it make us feel all sorts of ways provides enough temptation for me. But that wasn't true for Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve did not have a fallen nature. Thus, there was no inherent enticement in them. They needed something from the outside that would entice them. And Satan fulfilled that role. Now, that, that leads us to the question, was Satan uh, a necessary plan? And if so, is that fair? And, and I think that that's the kind of question we only ask from our mortal perspective. If we were to ask that from a divine perspective, like our Father in Heaven has, where he knows um, the end from the beginning, and he knows uh, his children, it was inevitable that there would be someone that would fulfill that role, and he knew someone would fulfill that role. But in any case, um, someone presided, provided that uh, outside temptation. Uh, we also have this question, if God, or, or this idea, if God created a world in which there was opposition, sin, and evil, then we could hold him responsible for such conditions. Instead, we are the ones who chose this, Adam and Eve first, and then we have uh, uh, ourselves that, that uh, provide all of this opposition and so on. So, in fact, uh, President Packer once put it this way, there was too much at issue to introduce man into mortality by force. That would contravene the very law essential to the plan, and that law is the, the uh, free agency. So the idea there is that because man, men and women uh, chose to come to a fallen world or chose to have the world fall, that made all the difference. Uh, it's different than if we were forced to do this. It changes everything. And we'll talk about how it changes everything as we go along. But that brings me to one of the elements that made this become very, very real to me. We'll talk more about, as, as we go along, the fact that I think Adam and Eve had a, a certain degree of knowledge and kind of knew what they were doing. Um, but we can start out just with this point that the fall was necessary, that the fall had to happen. And uh, it occurred to me one day that if Adam and Eve never made the choice that they made, then the plan wouldn't progress and we'd all be stuck. And who knows how long it took them. They may have been in the Garden of Eden for two million years while we were all up in heaven saying, come on, get on with it. We, we need this to happen. I don't know. But uh, it, it made me realize I've, I've often thought about uh, myself, and this is all speculation, but I think about myself in the grand council we often refer to at that pre-mortal pre council, uh, and hearing this, uh, that God has this plan, but it would necessitate our being cut off from his presence, it would necessitate our, um, our leaving him and the possibility of our not coming back, uh, and then him telling us that, that Jesus was willing to come down and suffer to make it possible for us to get back. And I can imagine being awash with gratitude and excitement for that, but I also understand that that would have required us to exercise faith in Christ even at that point. When we chose to follow Christ and the Father's plan, we were exercising faith, a belief that Christ would come 
and suffer for us and go through with all of the suffering, that great atoning sacrifice. Now I look back on faith with it, but at that point, I must have looked forward on faith with it. Uh, and then it occurred to me that the other really necessary element for this is that we would fall and that Adam and Eve would be put in the Garden of Eden and be given the choices that we're going to talk about as we go along and that they would have to choose to fall, which would be a difficult choice for them. And we had to exercise a degree of faith, not the same kind of faith we exercise in Christ. And I want to be clear about that. We exercise faith in Christ unto salvation. But I think we had to exercise a degree of faith in Adam and Eve that they would come and make that choice. Really, for everyone else, if, if uh, Joseph Smith had chosen to do things differently, God could have raised someone else up. But those, those three people, Adam, Eve, and Christ, everything hinged on them making the choices that they made. And I think we had to, and again, this is just my opinion, but I think we had to have some confidence or some faith that Adam and Eve would make the choice that they made. And it makes me think of how amazing they must be. If they're one of those few people that everything really hinged on them, oh, how uh, Mother Eve and Father Adam are, are, are people who we must have respected and trusted, and, and our father as well. And that that's made the story very real for me. And so I like to, as we go, I'm talking about that now, even though in some ways it would make more sense to talk about it later. Um, I'm talking about it now because it seems to me to, uh, it just makes those two people very real to me. And as we think about them in a very real way, as we go through the rest of this, I think that's, that's worthwhile. So in any case, we don't know exactly why the father created the world in an already fallen or didn't create the world in an already fallen state, but we, we can make some ideas, but that brings us to the second question. Did it have to happen that way? And by that way, I mean, by transgression. And I found again over time that if I ask this question among uh, an audience that has members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in it, that we will find that the, most people will say, yes, it had to happen by transgression, but not everyone. Uh, that's typically how this happens. Um, and we don't have a clear doctrine on this either. Uh, and I know some of my colleagues who are, are uh, great thinkers um, who really understand uh, things very well and have thought this through very carefully that have a different opinion than I do. Uh, and I'll respect that. And uh, I mean, of course, they're entitled to their, their own wrong opinion, right? I always love to say that. But, um, but uh, you can come down a couple of ways on this. My personal opinion is it, it did have to happen through transgression, but I can respect people that have a different uh, way of looking at that. We can read 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 22, which reads this way. And now behold, if Adam had not transgressed, he would not have fallen, but he would have remained in the Garden of Eden. And all things which were created must have remained in the same state in which they were after they were created, and they must have remained forever and had no end. Now, if we read this verse just on its face, it tells us if, if Adam and Eve, and when it says Adam here, it means Adam and Eve. If Adam and Eve had not transgressed, there would not have been a fall, and that wouldn't have created the conditions that we need for our mortal probation. I know you can read this to say, well, Lehi is just describing things the way they did happen, um, and, and that's a possible reading, but I think that it's more likely to take it just on its face value that, that it couldn't have happened without transgression. Um, let me suggest one other reason why I think that uh, it had to be transgression. Again, this is just me reasoning things through. Uh, we, there are a lot of things we don't know, as I said at the beginning, and we just have to be comfortable with not knowing. And it's worth our time to reason things through. Thinking about these doctrines invites the spirit 
to help us understand things. And it may teach us things that have nothing to do about what we're reasoning through, but it will, will teach us and help us understand the fall better. And so I think it's worth our time to reason these things through. It seems to me that a necessary part of our mortal probation was to be cut off from God's presence, to not be in his presence and not have full communion with him so that we could uh, be in the situation where we have to start to exercise our own agency and make decisions and figure things out on our own, always seeking direction and guidance from him and always wanting to do his will, but not always knowing what his will is and, and becoming the kind of beings that can understand good and righteousness on our own. Um, so that I think we have to be cut off from his presence. And it seems to me, again, just my opinion, that God could not or would not be able to cut us off from his presence for no reason, that that wouldn't be fair or right, that there had to be a reason, something that made it so that we could not have his presence. And I can't think of anything that would do that except for transgression. Transgression would make it so that we could not be in God's presence. And, and we should be clear about this. And we probably sh I should have said this uh, when we were first talking about free agency, Adam and Eve made their choice and that cut them off from the presence of God. And then we choose to follow Adam and Eve. And uh, the, that means that we're born into a fallen world in fallen bodies that have a fallen nature. So we have a divine nature. There's part of us that's divine, but there's a fallen nature in us as well. And, and mortal probation is really about which nature will we yield to. Uh, will we yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and become a saint or, or not? Yield to the enticings of the natural man, as King Benjamin talks about. So it seems to me that we choose to, to partake of fallen bodies that were created because Adam and Eve chose to transgress, to transgress, and that changed everything, the, the nature of the world, the nature of their beings, and so on. Um, and that uh, that is what would cut us off from God's presence. And so it would seem to me that transgression was necessary. But again, that's just my opinion. There are others who believe that if they just waited long enough, some other way would have happened or something along those lines. I don't know. Um, I, I really don't know. But that brings us to the question that many people have, which is what is about the seemingly two contradicting commandments? And by this, I mean that God creates uh, commands Adam and Eve to multiply and replenish the earth. And for reasons we do not fully understand, they cannot multiply and replenish the earth or have children in the, the state or nature that they are in. And so they'll have to fall to have that happen. But he also commands them not to partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so that seems to be a contradiction. We'll explore that as we go along, but it, it brings up another point. Many people ask uh, frequently, is there really a tree? Is there really fruit? Was there really a snake? In some accounts, it's a snake, and in some accounts, it's not. Uh, if you read the account in Genesis, it's slightly different from the one in Moses, and that can be different from things we encounter elsewhere. Uh, it, you know, it's hard to know exactly what's going on there and, and what's literal and what's symbolic. And my position is, uh, I don't know, it's hard to tell when things are literal. But they're always symbolic. Even the things that are literal are always symbolic. And so I'm not going to worry so much about what is literal. I'm going to focus on what are the symbols? What does God want me to learn from the way he's chosen to present this to us? Uh, he, he must have chosen to present it to us in, in some way that teaches us something um, through those symbols. And so I'll focus on the meaning of the symbols. So we talk about these, this tree that they're commanded not to partake of, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. 
and uh, they're told not to partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but that not partaking of it makes it so they're not fulfilling the first commandment. So let's look into this. And we're going to do this again. We don't have a clear doctrinal answer on this. We, we really don't. But uh, I have found uh, that I've, as I've looked at what um, different uh, prophets and apostles have taught about this, that they're actually fairly consistent in what they say about it. So this doesn't constitute doctrine. Doctrine comes uh, through the scriptures and through uh, official statements from the first presidency and quorum of the 12 and that kind of a thing. But, uh, but it, it, it persuades me. Uh, and uh, I should say also that I have created a handout uh, that has all sorts of statements from church leaders about the fall that you can find on my website, outofthedust.org. And if you go to the Old Testament AIDS page on there, so it's outofthedust.org and go to the Old Testament AIDS page, and you'll find a handout that has all sorts of statements from uh, brethren about the, the fall. In any case, we're going to read a couple. Two of the people who have spoken about this the most are Joseph Fielding Smith and John A. Widso. We're going to read quite a bit from both of them today, and we could read a lot more. I cut out um, some of the, the statements that I uh, often have from them just because this would be too long. Pardon me, but um, there's a reason why those two speak about it a lot, and it's this. That there was a time when people would write in questions to the first presidency and the church was small enough that the first presidency would answer those questions. But as the church grew too large, Heber J. Grant, who was president of the church, decided they needed to take a different way of doing that. He was the official, officially the editor of the, um, the improvement era. No, let's see. Yeah. The improvement era, which, or I think that's what it was called, um, which became the enzyme, which then became the Liahona. Um, but he asked for John A. Widso, who was an apostle at the time, and uh, one of the most intelligent and prolific uh, apostles we've ever had. And uh, he asked John A. Widso, would you please create a column in this magazine and answer people's questions? And so John A. Widso regularly answered the questions that came into the, the leaders of the church. In this column, he called his column Evidences and Reconciliations. Eventually, um, those, those columns were put into several books. You could get several volumes or you can get kind of a condensed version in one volume. Uh, but he answered, these are a lot of questions people had were about the issue we're talking about today. And so he answered those questions. When he died, they asked Joseph Fielding Smith to take over that column. And Joseph Fielding Smith did the same thing. And he called his uh, column uh, answers to gospel questions. And of course, that eventually was also made into a series of, of books. So they both uh, spoke about this a lot because they were the ones who these questions ended up being funneled to. So let's read something from Joseph Fielding Smith. Uh, of course, this is actually from a, a speech is given to students at BYU, but I think it's partially because he'd gotten these questions so often. And this is what he says. Adam and Eve were chosen to come here as the primal parents of humanity, and they were placed in the Garden of Eden where there was no death, and we read in the scriptures that they could have lived in that garden forever, but not under the most favorable circumstances. For there, although they were in the presence of God, they were deprived of certain knowledge and understanding in a condition where they could not understand clearly things that were necessary for them to know. Therefore, it became essential to their salvation and to ours that their nature should be changed. The only way it could be changed was by the violation of the law under which they were at the time. Mortality could not come without violation of that law, and mortality was essential, a step towards our exaltation. Therefore, Adam partook of the forbidden fruit, forbidden in a rather peculiar manner, for it is the only place in all the history where we read that the Lord forbade something and yet said, nevertheless, thou mayest choose for thyself. 
He never said that of any sin. So that's an important point, and we'll come back to that. I do not look upon Adam's fall as a sin, although it was a transgression of the law, the temporal law, and he became subject to death. The partaking of that fruit created blood in his body, and that blood became the life-giving influence of mortality. That's, that's pretty important stuff. So let's go back especially to that idea that there's something different about this commandment and the way it's given. Right? So let's ask, if you ever heard this commandment, thou shalt not murder, nevertheless thou mayest choose for thyself, for it is given unto thee. And obviously, you've not ever heard that. That's, that's not something that uh, we're ever going to encounter. But the point is that this is a law that's given differently. There's something going on here. So let's read a little bit more. Joseph Fillion Smith also said this, just why the Lord would say to Adam that he forbade him to partake of the tree is not made clear in the Bible account, but in the original, as it comes to us in the book of Moses, it is made definitely clear. It is that the Lord said to Adam that if he wished to remain as he was in the garden, then he was not to eat the fruit. But if he desired to eat it and partake of death, he was at liberty to do so. So really, it was not in the true sense a transgression of a divine commandment. Adam made the wise decision, in fact, the only decision that he could make. So Joseph Fielding Smith and others are arguing that really God gave to Adam and Eve these choices and explained to them the consequences. And that as they came to better understand the choice and the consequence, they made the right choice. John A. Witzow put it this way, the eternal power of choice was respected by the Lord himself. It really converts the command into a warning as much as if to say, if you do this thing, you will bring upon yourself a certain punishment, but do it if you choose. The Lord had warned Adam and Eve of the hard battle with earth conditions if they chose to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He would not subject his son and daughter to hardship and the death of their bodies unless it be of their own choice. They must choose for themselves. They chose wisely in accord with the heavenly law of love for others. Now, that's, that's very important. Again, this comes back to that idea of agency, but also the idea that they were given a choice and they chose to, to do this. Now, in the end, that would mean that God had to forbid them from doing it, partially because then when they did it, they would be transgressing what he had forbidden, and that would cut them off from his presence. That seems to be the essence of what's going on here, and that they made that choice so that they could gain what they and we needed to gain, but it had to be through transgressing what God had told them to do. Uh, and so it was a, a, a commandment, but also with an explanation, here are the consequences you're going to have to choose for yourself. That's, that's a, that is a tricky situation they're in. And it, I think it does take them some time to realize that that's what they needed to do. Uh, I'm glad it was Adam and Eve. And I'll profess that I don't fully understand all of this with any of the different possibilities and scenarios. Joseph Fielding Smith also said this, mortality was created through the eating of the forbidden fruit, if you want to call it forbidden. But I think the Lord has made it clear that it was not forbidden. He merely said to Adam, if you want to stay here in the garden, this is the situation. If so, don't eat it. Again, I would say then, and this is just my opinion, that in a way it was forbidden because it had to be forbidden so that they could uh, transgress. But uh, so we've already addressed the, the question, could it happen without transgression? But let's uh, read this from John A. Woodso. It is a thrilling thought that Adam and Eve were not coerced to begin God's work on earth. They chose to do so by the exercise of their free agency. It is the lesson for all their children. Seek truth, choose wisely, and carry the responsibility for acts. But this brings us to the question, were they deceived? Were Adam and Eve deceived? And especially Eve is the, the one that we often ask about. Was Eve deceived? 
And it's a little bit difficult to answer that question. Uh, certainly, we get the phrase beguiled, but beguiled doesn't necessarily mean deceived. It, it means that uh, you are uh, through some kind of guile and not necessarily always bad, right? We have some scriptural examples of guile being good. You're convinced or persuaded to do or believe something. And Eve was beguiled, but probably of something that was good. Um, Paul tells us she was deceived. I don't know what the nature of that deception was. Was it something like uh, as simple as, well, this is a choice you should make in, in conjunction with your spouse, not one that you make on your own? Or was it, and I, I kind of lean towards this, that she was deceived when Satan said that they, they wouldn't die, uh, they, they were going to die. Uh, that, I think that's, that's clear. They were going to die, and she may have been deceived on that point. I don't know exactly what she's deceived on, um, but she was deceived in some manner. But let's also keep this in mind, and we're going to read from Moses chapter 4, verse, verse 6. And Satan put it into the heart of the serpent, for he had drawn away many after him. And he sought also to beguile Eve, for he knew not the mind of God, wherefore he sought to destroy the world. I don't know why Satan doesn't know the man, mind of God if it's uh, he knew the plan to begin with, and then he was given some kind of veil, or if because of his self-centeredness and so on, he was never able to fully understand. Or, but for one reason or another, Satan didn't understand the, the plan fully and, and appropriately, and thus he thought that this was going to destroy the plan in the world, but in fact, it furthered it. And so my question is, who deceived whom? I think Eve got the better of Satan in this whole story, and, and I think Satan's frankly been mad at Eve and, and her daughters ever since uh, because of that. But that, again, is just my opinion. John A. Witzow said this, the role of Satan in this drama is not difficult to understand. He seeks to overthrow the work of God. By inducing Adam and Eve to disobey the Lord, he thought to have them in his power. He forgot or did not know that by their very disobedience, the purposes of the Lord with respect to his spirit children would be accomplished. The temptation of Eve turned upon him to, defeat of, to the defeat of his evil designs. That's worth understanding. Now we have to ask the question then, as they made this choice, did they know what they were doing? Did they understand what they were doing or not? And we can't fully answer that question. Again, we don't have a doctrine on this, but we can try and reason it through. I think there were some things that they understood and some things that they didn't understand, but that it was a fairly informed decision. We'll talk a little bit later about um, things that I think they didn't understand, but I, I would suggest that in some ways, especially Eve, that it was a, a fairly informed decision. Um, this is something that Johnny Witzow said, such was the problem before our first parents, to remain forever at selfish ease in the Garden of Eden, or to face unselfishly tribulation and death in bringing to pass the purposes of the Lord for a host of waiting spirit children. They chose the latter. This they did with open eyes and minds as to the consequences. The memory of their former estates may have been dimmed, but the gospel had been taught to them during their sojourn in the Garden of Eden. They could not have been left in complete ignorance of the purpose of their creation. So that's Elder Woodso's opinion on this, and I, I agree with him. I think that it's quite likely that they, they had at least a somewhat informed opinion on this. Uh, he also said this, Elder Woodso, considering our full knowledge of the purpose of the plan of salvation and the reason for placing Adam and Eve on the earth, the apparent contradiction in the story of the fall vanishes. Instead, the law of free agency or individual choice appears in distinct view. Now, I, I, I probably shouldn't give so much of just my opinion uh, somewhere along the way that's going to get me in trouble, I would guess, but I'll share again just my opinion on this. 
uh, as I think it makes a tremendous amount of sense that Eve is the one who first figured out what we needed. And thank goodness for Eve, really thank goodness for Eve. In fact, l- let me first say this. If you study what prophets and apostles have talked about in conjunction with the fall, the two synonyms that are used most often with Eve are the synonyms or the two adjectives, I mean, the two adjectives that describe Eve and are used most often in in conjunction with Eve when we're talking about the fall are courage and wisdom. Both of those imply that Eve understood what was happening, was wise enough and brave enough to make that choice. And so that suggests to me that Eve uh, made at least a somewhat informed opinion uh, that Adam then was wise enough to follow his wife's example. That's how it often works. And um, that thank goodness this uh, this happened. We're so grateful for Eve and her wisdom and her courage. So with that in mind, I think it's not surprising that Eve would uh, be the first one to figure out that something was wrong, that something more needed to happen. It seems to me, and I could be reading this wrong and, and uh, would love to be corrected if I am, but it seems to me based at least partially on reading the proclamation about the family, that while men and women help each other in their various roles and responsibilities, uh, and we're full and equal partners, absolutely full and equal partners, um, there is a uh, a natural proclivity uh, that gender existed before this world, and there's a natural proclivity towards certain roles. Adam's role, and maybe it's not even a natural proclivity for male and female, maybe it just ends up being what they're the proclivity they're given at the time. But Adam is instructed, I would guess, that his primary role is to provide and protect. And that's something he can do incredibly well in the Garden of Eden, right? Oh, nothing to protect from, provision done, right? Everything seems dandy for Adam and his primary focus in the Garden of Eden. But if Eve has been given the role and a proclivity towards um, nurturing, rearing and, and nurturing children, that's something she can't do at all. And so it's, I think they both will have a sense of there's something missing. There's something that we're, we're supposed to be doing that we're not doing. They'll have that sense of longing and need. But I suspect that Eve felt it more keenly and earlier than Adam. And so it's not surprising to me that she figured this out first. That's just my opinion, my speculation. We know that she does say this after the fall. We're not for our transgression. We never should have had seed and never should have known good and evil and the joy of our redemption and the eternal life, which God giveth unto all the obedient. That's in Moses chapter five, verse 11. So she certainly comes to that understanding that she have that before she partook of the fruit or not. I don't know. I kind of suspect so, but I don't know. Now let's talk about the idea of sin as opposed to transgression. Uh, And I want to be clear that most of the time, scriptural authors use these as exact synonyms. They're used to mean sin. Most of the time, they both mean sin. And so we need to know that, or we'll get confused as we read the scriptures, and we might think that um, that they're always talking about two different things. They're not. Most of the time, transgression is used to mean sin. But there are times when we want to distinguish between two different things, and then in those few uh, scriptural instances, sin and transgression are used differently. Most of the time today, we use them differently, but that's not the case with scriptural authors. So we're going to use them differently here to make a distinction between two different kinds of things. And I would say there are two ways, two distinctions between a sin and a transgression, two different kinds of distinctions. So one of those has to do with our state of knowledge or our understanding. The Book of Mormon teaches us this very clearly. 
if you do not know or understand the law, then you're not held accountable for it. You may still break it, but you're not held accountable for it. So just as an example, let's say that you took your 10-year-old and your three-year-old to the store and they wanted some candy and you told them no, they couldn't have the candy. And then they took the candy and ate it anyway. So they stole it. The 10-year-old would understand that he was stealing and that would be a sin. I'm not sure that the two or three-year-old would, would really fully understand that. I think they would figure, well, if I could get my hands on it, it's mine. Um, and so the, the, there still would have been stealing. The law still would have been broken, but it would have been a transgression as opposed to a sin because they didn't fully understand it. And the Book of Mormon is clear. Both King, Mos or King Benjamin and Mormon are clear that um, if it's a transgression because you don't fully know or understand that the atonement, uh, the atoning sacrifice of Christ automatically covers that transgression, that breaking of the law. Now, we've been saying that Adam and Eve had a fairly decent understanding, at least I'm supposing, I'm, I'm uh, opining that they had a decent understanding. So could this have been a transgression when we're saying that they understood some things? And I think it probably still could be because of a, a key element of knowledge that they are missing. What they are fully missing is experiential knowledge. It's one thing for someone to tell you that you will experience pain and you will experience sorrow when you have no idea what those words mean. If you've never experienced pain or sorrow, then those words are, are nice words, but they don't really mean anything to you. Adam and Eve could not have fully understood what they were getting themselves into. Now, that's true for all of us, right? We don't understand what we're getting ourselves into uh, for, in terms of marriage or bearing children or all sorts of things. When we say yes to callings, we don't fully understand what we're getting ourselves into. Um, but I think that they lacked some really key experiential knowledge. And so I would argue that, that because of that, this was a transgression as opposed to a sin. There's another reason or distinction between sin and transgression that President Oaks has taught us about. He said, some acts like murder are crimes because they are inherently wrong. Other acts like operating without a license are crimes only because they are legally prohibited. Under these distinctions, the acts that produced the fall was not a sin, inherently wrong, but a transgression, wrong because it was formally prohibited. These words are not always used to denote something different, but this distinction seems meaningful in the circumstances of the fall. So you see, uh, this is something that was formally prohibited. As this is, uh, kind of goes along the thinkings of Elder Witzow and, and uh, President Joseph Fielding Smith, uh, the idea that it was formally prohibited, but not inherently wrong. Now, there is a danger behind this. So, for example, I say to my students, I don't want you to, to think, okay, well, Moses could drink wine and I can't. That means it's not inherently wrong. It's just formally prohibited. And so you're just going to transgress if you go out and drink a lot of wine. Uh, and so it's no big deal. Uh, that's not the case because since you know it's formally prohibited and you choose to do it anyway, then you're rebelling against God. That's just out and out rebellion. And that is inherently wrong and that's a sin. So how does that work for Adam and Eve? Well, if this did happen the way that uh, Elder uh, Woodso and Joseph Fielding Smith and lots of others have suggested that this was a warning, then it wasn't rebellion against God. It was choosing when God said, you may choose for yourself, that made it so that it wasn't rebellion. It was them deciding which choice they would make. And in that case, then this would be a transgression 
going against something that was formally prohibited rather than a sin. So again, just my opinion, but I think that's what's happening here. Uh, President Oaks went on to say, it was Eve who first transgressed the limits of Eden in order to initiate the conditions of mortality. Her act, whatever its nature, was formally a transgression, but eternally a glorious necessity to open the doorway toward eternal life. Adam showed his wisdom by doing the same, and thus even Adam fell that men might be. Isn't that wonderful? That's just such a fantastic viewpoint of the fall, and I think it's important for us to understand that. We're going to read this from President uh, Nelson, and you'll see his being a doctor showing through in here, but this is from President Nelson given many years ago in general conference. If that state, meaning the state they were in in the Garden of Eden before partaking of the fruit, if that state had persisted, you and I would still be stranded among the heavenly hosts as unborn sons and daughters of God. The great plan of happiness would have been frustrated. That leads us to the fall of Adam. To bring the plan of happiness to fruition, God issued to Adam and Eve the first commandment. This is actually the second commandment, but anyway, the first commandment ever given to mankind. It was explained to them, should they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their bodies would change. Mortality and eventual death would come upon them. But partaking of the fruit was prerequisite to their parenthood. While I do not fully understand all the biochemistry involved, I do know that their physical bodies did change. Blood began to circulate in their bodies. Adam and Eve thereby became mortal. Happily for us, they could also beget children and fulfill the purposes for which the world was created. Happily for them, the Lord said to Adam and Eve, Behold, I have forgiven thee thy transgression in the Garden of Eden. We and all mankind are forever blessed because of Eve's great courage and wisdom. By partaking of the fruit first, she did what needed to be done. Adam was wise enough to do likewise. Accordingly, we could speak of the fall of Adam in terms of a mortal creation because Adam fell that men might be. That's again, beautiful and, and good stuff. And note how he talks about Eve's courage and wisdom. It's such a fantastic way to view the fall. Um, and so we're, we're going to wrap up here in just a second, but <clears throat> let's cover just a couple of other things. Brigham Young said, the Lord knew that they, Adam and Eve would do this and had designed that they should. Adam and Eve did the very thing the Lord intended them to do. That changes the way we look at the fall. Um, and uh, so we're going to, to look at a couple of uh, things that come from this. We're going to ask, are there consequences for an incorrect view of the fall? And there are consequences. There are more than we can explore here, but there are consequences for not viewing the fall as this fortunate, necessary, good thing, thing something that we needed and wanted, right? Uh, one of those is that, uh, and this historically, people have uh, very, very incorrectly blamed women for the fall because Eve is the one who made this choice. Historically, uh, in many Christian uh, ideas and, and thoughts and denominations, women were of a lower nature because Eve made this choice. Let's read what President Oaks had to say about this. Some Christians condemn Eve for her act, concluding that she and her daughters are somehow flawed by it not the Latter-day Saints. Informed by revelation, we celebrate Eve's act and honor her wisdom and courage in the great episode called The Fall. Isn't that fantastic? That's exactly right. We, in fact, this elevates the nature of, of Eve, certainly, and in some ways, all women, because of her wisdom and courage in making that choice. That's such a different and distinct viewpoint than what so many have regarding The Fall. 
that brings me, we're going to come back to this idea of incorrect uh, or consequences for an incorrect view of the fall in just a second, but that reminds me of one other thing. Um, sometimes people misconstrue the term help meet uh, in a way that is demeaning to women. And so I'd again, encourage you to listen to that uh, podcast interview I did with Rebecca Call on the term help meet. There's another uh, phrase that we should uh, look at, the phrase in Genesis uh, 3.16, uh, which is Yimashal uh, Bach or Bech, uh, that, that we translate as you shall rule over her. That's the King James translation. But this uh, letter bait in Hebrew, uh, so Yimashal means uh, he shall or he will rule. Um, and then it's bait uh, and then ch. So that's in you, but uh, or over you. Uh, but it can also be translated as with you, bait or that, that pre prefix, but we most often translate it as the, the preposition in. In doesn't work tremendously well here. He shall rule in you. So we have to choose some of the other possible ways of translating that, that uh, prefix or that uh, preposition. And you could choose over, but it's just as, as likely the way it's often used to be with. And I like that, that translation uh, much better. He shall rule with thee instead of in thee. You could do it either way, but I think that's a reasonable translation. He shall rule with thee. That's a, that's a, I like that understanding better. I think that's more accurate. So now let's go back to this idea of the uh, consequences for an incorrect view of the fall. One of them is certainly misunderstanding the nature of women. There are plenty of others, but I think perhaps the most profound one is we misunderstand the nature of our mortal probation. So I want you to contrast these two things. And I'm going to choose a, a particular disease that my father suffered uh, from and died from its, its effects. Uh, so it's one that, that is meaningful to me. And I, I hope it's not too tender for anyone else who is suffering from this or who uh, um, has a loved one that's suffering from this. But it's, it's one that I've thought about a lot because uh, it certainly affected me. Um, so let's say that you are experiencing Parkinson's or any other terrible thing that happens in your life, but we'll just use Parkinson's as an example. It's one thing if you think the fall is an accident. If you think the fall was an accident that should not have happened, then you can say, okay, this is the results of having a fallen body. I shouldn't have a fallen body. That's Adam and Eve's fault. And so I am going through this terrible suffering or my loved one is going through this terrible suffering because of something someone else did. Now, often suffering is the result of something someone else did, but even then you say, okay, we have a fallen world. And so I can suffer from what someone else did because of what Adam and Eve did. Now contrast that approach with this one, which is what I think my father exemplified. This is the, what I'm going through and my loved ones are going through is the result of having a fallen body. And a fallen body is the result of the choice that Adam and Eve made to create the kinds of conditions that we needed in order to have a successful mortal probation, a mortal probation that would give us the experiences we needed to become more Christ-like. Therefore, the question is, how does this way of experiencing fallen conditions, how can I, it help me to become more Christ-like or help my loved ones to become more Christ-like? That is a radically different approach than the one of, of uh, saying it's, it's a terrible accident that never should have happened. It really changes the way we approach everything. Now, those with an incorrect view of the fall will still often try and ask, what can I learn from this? 
but I think it happens more deeply and more innately when we understand the fall correctly. I think that we, we can come to, to really understand the, um, the fall and its effect on our mortal probation and be more successful in our mortal probation and trying to become Christ-like when we understand the fall correctly. I am so grateful, so, so grateful to have a, a restoration understanding of the fall. What we gain from the Book of Mormon, from the Doctrine and Covenants, from the Pearl of Great Price, and from the teachings of, of modern prophets and apostles. I am so grateful for that. It profoundly affects me and my life, and it makes me so proud to be a descendant of Adam and Eve. And it makes them so real to me as they wrestle through this choice. Uh, and I'm so grateful for them and for the plan and for Christ who makes it possible for us to overcome the fall. And with Adam and Eve, I rejoice in Christ's willingness, God's willingness to send his son and Christ's willingness to come and suffer for us so that we can overcome those. And I testify of that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining me. I, I hope this has been helpful for you. 